Hello and welcome to At Your Service, where we are truly at your service. I'm Casey Alexander. I'm Emerson Elledge. And I'm Addison Lockock. And I'm Mike Possel, and I teach uh, we the people at the 8th grade level and 7th grade world history at Fisher Junior High. And today we're going to be talking about civics, just why it's important and why we should teach more of it, probably. Yeah, so seeing as you're a history teacher at the junior high, how important do you think civics are to the young student learning about government and just how our government works? Well, your, your question is actually a bigger question than what you were asking. I mean, if we could break it down and just say, why is the education of civics important? The, the reality is, uh, with an uneducated electorate, there's no accountability possible in government. In addition to that, an, an uneducated electorate never understands the full power that they have uh, upon the government itself, that the ability for the individual to believe that they can make a change. That all change should come from the lowest part to the highest part. And if you look historically, the greatest changes and movements in our countries have always started from the small number that have spread to the greater number. In order to do that though, it requires that you understand the rights that you have, the power that you have, and then the avenues that you have in order to exercise that power. Right, so um, when teaching civics, what is the first thing that your mind always goes to? Like, what do you teach first? What do kids have to understand in order to understand? At a base level before they, yeah. before they expand upon that knowledge. Sure, and I almost always like to start out with the idea to show how powerful the young have been in our country. And I like to point out, and I think that historians have done not an intentionally bad job of this, but we have a tendency to look at the framers and founders of our country, and we always look at these pictures of them when they're really old. And then all of a sudden, you know, when you go back and you use a little math to figure out when they were born and then when the, like, the Revolutionary War happens, you realize that most of these people, when they did that, were really young. Except for Ben Franklin. Except for <laughs> Benjamin Franklin. And really, uh, George Washington, probably early 40s. Yeah. But so many of them were in their late teens and 20s. Uh, it, I'm always, the kids are always shocked when I point out that uh, when the Marquis de Lafayette uh, was basically commanding as a full colonel in the Revolutionary War, he was all of 20 years old. <laughs> Which made him, what, a sophomore in college. Yeah. And then you start looking at the ages of these names that we know. You get James Monroe, I think, was like 24. You know, Hamilton was like 20. I mean, these, they, we were, our nation was actually founded on the backs of very young people. And so I think we do a disservice if we make people feel Powerless. And then we point out the modern revolutions, from the Velvet Revolution to the Iranian student revolutions, how much youth has, you know, has played a role in changing the direction of our country. For those of us of a certain age, the, during the Vietnam, the protests on college campuses and those type of things. But even like as recently as March for Our Lives, you know, galvanized out of a high school kid's living room, uh, the, the, probably the biggest thing that I normally like to lead off is that, the idea that we are not powerless just because of our age or our position uh, in the world. So two court cases that I can think of right now that are about student or like youth rights, um, Tinker, Visa Moyne, and then I, the 
the official name escapes me, but the bomb hits for Jesus mm-hmm. case. Morphine could you, Frederick. yeah, could you explain those a little bit for us? Sure, and uh, you know, uh, Tinker is like the law of the land on the kind of the restrictions on student speech, and it's a 1969 case, right? And the the armband wearing with the peace symbol on it in you know protest. Uh, of the Vietnam War. I don't know if that mechanism is very important. What's important is the, what the court said. And what the court said is, is that a student's rights do not end at the schoolhouse gate. Now, it doesn't mean that, that students have the full expression, right? But you, you will see this concept um, play out through time since then. There's a um, court case, and I think it's uh, Katie versus Fillmore, uh, case that basically a student uh, wore a sweatshirt that said abortion is murder and um, had a Bible verse in back. And he like wore it every Wednesday of the school year. After he'd worn it for like nine weeks, ten weeks, uh, there was a complaint to the administration by a couple students uh, that, that made him uncomfortable and the school administration said you can't wear that shirt anymore. And the courts, when they looked at it, they said, you know, we're, we, that should be allowed because just because you don't like something, this idea that they call it the heckler's veto, just because something makes you uncomfortable doesn't justify the restriction of the speech. And so that to me was kind of like, you know, um, tinker in the action itself. That just because speech makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean it should be banned. Right, because I think almost all change and all discussion has to really start with some level of uncomfortableness. And I think that's a reminder that students are not these purely secondary citizens that have no protection. And then in the Bong Hits for Jesus case, um, that case is interesting. Um, I'm not sure how good of a law that decision was. I don't know the necessarily the applicability of the law in today. It's hard to replicate that thing, but basically it's just the idea that the school can expand its sphere a little bit outside of the schoolhouse area. That they can kind of say, if you are representing the school or people perceive you to represent the school, that then your speech can be restricted. And you've mentioned so much about students learning about civic education. How about adults or people who don't no longer go to school? Well, that's the that's the great dilemma, right? Is that it's you know with students you have a captured audience, and so as the Indiana State Assembly did, they passed a mandatory civics education. It's going to land in second semester, I think, of sixth grade, uh, which is great. It's a captured audience, but how do you civically educate adults? Uh, can you provide incentives to do that? Would the incentives work? Uh, could you use, you know, commercials coming on on social media platforms to do that? Um, could you offer community classes? Well, sure, but the same dilemma will still exist. They're not a captured audience. How do you reach the people who need it the most? It is a problem that, to tell you the truth, is vexing because the solution could actually lead to more problems. If you made it mandatory, and then if people didn't do it, you restricted their right to vote. That by itself smacks of a modern-day literacy test. And 
you know, historians and students of We the People in particular uh, will feel the little shiver run up their little constitutional spines anytime there is the phrase literacy test mentioned. Mm -hmm. So the adult dilemma, I wish I had a wonderful response on how to fix that, but I don't know. You know, community outreach is great, but it's not mandatory. The audience is not captured. So earlier you said <clears throat> that uh, education comes from a place of like uncomfortableness, right? Um, how would you respond to bills, especially in Indiana, like House Bill uh, 1134, which was fortunately axed for in my opinion, but how would you respond to bills like that? Well, you know I responded to that bill. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, may oh, have, yeah. I may have drawn a wee bit of fire with that uh, when I responded to that bill because I'm a passionate believer that there is not versions of history. There's just history. And as soon as there are people start identifying versions of history, then that has a tendency to lean into bias and propaganda. And so I believe when history is presented, it needs to all be presented. And it needs that includes all sides of it. Not necessarily saying that one side is more correct than the other, right? It's the about the presentation of history. When you give people the tools to analyze history, then they can make an informed opinion about their views on history. But to deny one, you know, uncomfortable parts of history, that's dangerous to me. And so I, you know, I mean, I'm aware of the fact that maybe some subject matter doesn't belong in some classrooms. I'm not saying that we should show the atrocities of Rwanda and Uganda to kindergartners, but, you know, I am very aware that um, those type of things when, you know, if it's in your curriculum to teach world history and you're supposed to teach the issues in Africa, you can't avoid the uncomfortable. Because if you avoid the uncomfortable, then my fear is, is that then that, that problem will echo or repeat. And I, I, I fear that. I, I fear that. Um, my next question is, Students are very engaged in your Be The People program, and I can tell just by looking at them that they love to be involved. How much do you think We The People impacts junior high students? Well, I mean, I know it does. I know that because I, I watched my We The People kids go on and enter into activities that maybe they could not see themselves doing when they were the seventh and eighth grade versions. The number of We the People kids that go into these, you know, uh, mock trial and, and speech and debate and, you know, uh, model UN and that kind of stuff, uh, the, the, my We the People kids, I almost said Weeples, but I thought that would need explanation, but my We the People kids end up being very comfortable in positions where they have to debate with grace and intelligence demonstrate the ability to listen but are willing to enter into the public sphere every time I see one of my we the people kids uh, get national recognition in a program that I know they learn the ability to speak in front of people with intelligence uh, and those type of things it shows to me the importance of that we the people program 
And disproportionately, if you look at those programs, the number of we the people kids involved in it is pretty high. Now it could be that I'm just picking, you know, naturally gifted kids that would end up drifting there anyway, but I believe that there is some causation from the we the people experience to gravitating to those type of programs to include the fact that maybe a group of three kids sitting in front of me who are doing a <laughs> podcast, uh, who happen all to be We The People kids, wow. you know, that that might be, you know, causation to me, you know? And so I think there's a direct connection to that. So why, what inspired you to do like eighth grade? Like why, why did you choose to start doing like civic education for just eighth grade? Like why didn't you go to like younger grade levels or older grade levels? And it's interesting, I mean, I. Uh, Liz Paternoster um, asked me to, you know, advise a unit on We the People. I had no earthly idea what it was, but, you know, it was being involved with kids and, you know, and I said yes. And I worked with, you know, her unit twos for a couple of years. And then uh, Fishers High School finally uh, wins state. It was a great moment. But Ms. Paternoster couldn't go because she was expecting her first child at the same time that that the competition was and so I went with some of the other advisors to that and um, that experience I wanted we the people kid I, I wanted junior high kids to have a chance to experience that and so I came back and I talked to my wonderful principal Dr. Crystal Thorpe and said I want to do this I don't know how to do it but I want to do this and so we did and uh, we surprised ourselves and everybody else that we did pretty well our first year, even though I was pretty clueless uh, for that. We finished second, second in the state. And then that started us on a roll of domination. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about domination, but we've done pretty well. Uh, but the idea that kids could experience, you know, um, the DC part of it, you know, pre-COVID, uh, the DC part of it, but also that competition, that genuine assessment, uh, the genuine audience, that kind of stuff. Uh, I wanted that. I wanted my junior high kids to experience that. With all that being said, thank you all for listening. I'm Casey Alexander. I'm Emerson Elledge. I'm Allison Luckock. And I am Mike Fossil. And we have been at your service.